So unless uh, you were dropped here from an alien spaceship this morning, you would have noticed that over the last decade, social media has become a thing. Not just a thing, but an incredibly influential thing, an incredibly pervasive thing. And uh, a funny phenomenon has kind of been woven through social media, this thing called a hashtag. Ten years ago, we didn't really know what a hashtag was, and it certainly didn't do then what it does now. And among social media, the hashtag can be used in a variety of ways. See, one of the things about social media is social media, for the most part, is an edited, polished, perfected version of people's real lives. I often refer to it as the highlight reel. We see other people's highlight reel. And, and when we see other people's highlight reel, and because we see other people's highlight reel, one of the most pervasive hashtags going around is hashtag goals. G-O-A-L-S. Hashtag goals. Has anyone seen hashtag goals when you've been trolling social media? Okay, one of you lives in the 21st century with me. Very good. Fantastic. You're welcome to catch up. The rest of you. Hashtag goals. Now, hashtag goals isn't used in the way of like setting goals, like achieving goals. It's actually, it's actually got a kind of a specialist use about it. Um, for example, if you see uh, Kimye uh, flying around on their private jet, you might comment hashtag goals, meaning, yeah, right, as if that could ever happen to me. You see uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce swimming in their backyard lap pool filled with champagne, crystal, and you'd be like, yeah, all right, hashtag goals. No way that could happen to me. You see the, the, the mum to be, the expectant mum in the gym, taking a, 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 a selfie, or, or they call it a healthy if you take it in the gym, taking a healthy, eight months pregnant and still has six-pack abs. And you go, hashtag goals, as if. So I'm curious to know, how many of you are goal setters? I'm not, not going to name and shame whether you're goal achievers, but you know, how many of you occasionally be known to set a goal? Me, uh, me, I'm a goal setter. Did you know that God is a goal setter? Might be a surprise to you. Now, he's not like trolling the self-improvement section of Amazon, looking for some books that will help him achieve some personal goals. He's certainly not hashtagging goals. He owns everything. So if he sees uh, Kimye on their private jet, he's not intimidated. He's not envious. He's already everywhere. He doesn't even need a jet. He's got some big goals. In fact, his biggest goal is to make the kingdom, his kingdom, come on earth as it already is in heaven. And that's a pretty ambitious goal. And then he sets us some goals. He's given us the goal of actually making that happen which is a pretty ambitious goal. But it's important for us as the church to understand that if we share the heart of God, we also need to make sure we share the goals of God. So there's no point in us closing the doors, keeping all the Christians in until we become perfect before we let the next group in. We've got to make sure that we share the goals of God. And that is for... For, for his kingdom to stretch, his people need to stretch. 
No good for us having great music or great elevate kids or great elevate youth or great preaching or whatever the, the boxes, the insiders might tick. If the kingdom of God's not growing, we're not reaching the goal, goal God has set us. So it's important that we're aware of goals. It's important we set goals and it's important we pursue goals and we can unashamedly pursue the goals that God set for us to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. One of the things I've observed in life that, that stops people reaching their goals and even stops churches reaching their goals is limitations. Last week, we, we had a quick glance back to a, a, an episode in the early church. And I'm going to talk a bit more about that this morning. But when it comes to limitations, Jesus started the church with 12 guys. One of them didn't continue the journey. So it was whittled down to 11. And out of 11 guys, a movement was born that threatened the religious leaders of the day, that threatened the government of the day, and that has exploded globally over the last 2,000 years. And yet that early church was incredibly limited. They didn't have Facebook to, to publicize what they're doing. They didn't have a website for people to have, get directions of time and, and where they're meeting. Heck, they didn't even have ants in your pants coffee to lure people through the doors of their church. They were incredibly limited. And yet when you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you will see time after time after time where their limitations didn't limit them. It's a very important distinction. Last week, and Jess mentioned our podcast, you can go back and listen to last week's message. Last week, we, we, we looked at the, this historical event where two of Jesus' first followers, Peter and John, on a Saturday, a particular Saturday, we're walking into the temple to pray in Jerusalem. And at the front, outside the front gate, the front door of that temple, was a man, a beggar, a crippled. And in fact, the story goes on to recount that he'd been crippled since birth. And that now, every single day, his buddies would bring him to the temple and would sit him out the front of the temple. And he made his living by begging. Just enough to get through the day. A crippled man begging. Peter and John, two of Jesus' earliest followers, walked, were walking into the temple. They walked past this crippled man. The crippled man asked them, no doubt the same question he was asking every single person that day, have you got any spare change? And Peter said to him, buddy, I ain't carrying no cash on me right now. So I don't have spare change, but what I do have is some life change. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you and I command you in the name of Jesus that you are healed and to get up and walk. And Peter reached down and grabbed that man by the right hand. That crippled man reached up and grabbed Peter by the right hand. And, and, and Peter raised him to his feet. And, and his legs and his ankles became strong. And he started to stand. And then he started to walk. Then he started to dance. Incredible. Peter was seemingly limited because he didn't have any money. And yet, despite his so-called limitations, this crippled man was healed. What's interesting, in our lives, when we do something, or let me say it this way, when God does something through us that is far beyond what you could explain in your own strength, it actually creates interest. And Peter was smart enough to seize that opportunity. Because what happened is when this crippled man started, started walking and dancing around the temple, people were like, hang on a second, I've been... I, I, I've been walking past that guy for years now. 
In fact, I think I walked past him on the way in. And he wasn't able to, he wasn't able to walk, so he was either conning us or, or something's happened here. Turns out something's happened here. He got healed. So people gathered around. People started flocking to see what happened to this man. And Peter, being smart, took the opportunity to start teaching them about Jesus. Well, like I said, the early, church, the early religious leaders didn't like that very much. Jesus was a threat to them. That's why they had him killed in the first place. He was a threat to them because they th- thrived on power. And Jesus was not using their system to give power to the people. He was using his power. He was conferring that directly onto people. You didn't have to go through some third party. They didn't like that very much. So Luke, who was writing the, the account, says that while Peter and John were addressing the people, the priests, the chief of the temple police, <laughs> think we need to get some of them, some elevate police. And some Sadducees, there's a very terrible old preacher's joke that I will spare you and not tell you about the Sadducees, came up. Indignant that these upstart apostles were instructing the people and proclaiming that the resurrection from the dead had taken place in Jesus. They arrested them and threw them in jail until the morning. For by now it was late in the evening. But many of those who listened had already believed in the message. In round numbers, about 5,000. This was a pretty substantial day for the early church. The guys who didn't have any money... Just preached about Jesus and 5,000 people started following him. The people who had limitations started preaching about Jesus and people started following him. Now they've been put in prison. You think they had limitations before? They're, They're called to go out and preach about Jesus, share the message about Jesus, tell people about Jesus. Now they're being stuck in a tight place where they can't tell anybody about anything. Now, I'll give you a little bit of bonus content here, by the way. A lot of preaching will tell you about following Jesus is full of blessings. And, I, and it is. Full of blessings, but not only full of blessings. Some preaching will teach you about the punishment for disobedience. You're, obe- you're blessed if you're obedient, and you get punished if you're not. Yeah, it's, it's pretty true. But here's this story of two guys that were preaching about Jesus got thrown in prison. It's important for us to realize sometimes there's a price to pay for obedience. And it's not blessing. It's actually pain. It's actually discomfort. It's actually inconvenience. We need to know that if we're going to follow Jesus because he's going to call us to do some things that aren't going to win the popularity contest, aren't going to be comfortable, aren't going to be convenient. But these guys now were in a tight space And they had to live in the hope that God can do something in tight spaces. And I believe that's true. I believe that God specializes in doing things in tight places. Things that we can't do. Things that can't be explained just with our strength and our smarts and our abilities. If it's tight in your job right now, that's a perfect place for God to do something because God specializes in doing things in tight spaces. If it's tight in your marriage right now, that's a perfect opportunity for God to do something that's beyond your strength and your capabilities. If it's tight 
with your money. If you're in a tight space financially right now, it's the perfect place for God to do something. Because those very situations where we find ourselves on our knees, somehow crippled with relationship issues, somehow crippled with financial issues, somehow crippled with job issues, the very things that drive us to our knees, hopefully cause us to stay on our knees and say to God, I need you to get me out of this tight space. Thought I could do it on my own, but I can't. First of August, I had the privilege of performing a wedding. Some people say I married a couple. It's like, no, you didn't. They married each other. That's just weird. Say this instead. Say, I conducted a wedding for a couple. Oh, yeah, that's good. Face palm. Um, So I conducted a wedding for Reese and Jess McLaughlin. Over to my left, up in sunny Queensland, and it was cool. Um, and uh, so we did a bit of uh, prep in the lead up to the wedding, as you do. And uh, we were having lunch at, at Grilled a uh, month or two prior to that, just going over the, the order of, of the ceremony and so on. Finished up the formalities, chowing down on our burgers. And, uh, and Jess says to me, Mark, I've got a question for you. I think I know what you're going to say. And I always say to people that say that to me, it's very unlikely you're going to know, you know what I'm going to say. But what's the question? And she said, well, as you know, and I did, she said, as you know, and by the way, I've got permission to tell this story. Uh, as you know, Reese and I are working towards getting out of debt financially. We work, we're walking towards and working towards financial freedom. We've accumulated quite a, a lot of debt. And uh, so we're just chipping away at that. Um, you know, and it's a grind, but we're making progress, but it's not, you know, necessarily as quick as, as we'd like. So my question is, um, should we start giving our first 10% to God? Like, like he tells us in the Bible now, should we start doing that now? Or should we take that money and put it towards our debt? And then when we're out of debt, then move that 10% over to, uh, giving. It's a good question, right? Yeah, don't judge them. I'll be telling your story next week. Um, so they had $40,000 in debt at the time. Uh, a, a, pers- a credit card and a couple of personal loans. Now, I didn't ask to see the paperwork, but uh, you guys know personal loan, 15 to 20% interest, credit card, 20 to 30% interest. I often say when your nostril deep in something, even the slightest ripple is life-threatening. So when you're not only just making the payments, but getting charged the interest on top of that, it's very difficult to climb out of debt. And they're not yet earning the big bucks. They work, but they're not yet earning the big bucks. So it was a grind. So the easy thing for me to say to them is, oh, don't worry, don't worry. You know, don't, don't, don't do the inconvenient thing. Don't worry about what the Bible says. Just, you know... Well, I'm not going to say that, but I'm not going to start preaching at people either. What I like to do instead is you say, look, the best that I've been able to understand the Bible, what God says, and the best that that Louis and I have been able to apply it is is this. And the way I understand God's instruction around giving and the way Louisa and I understand how that applies, even when, when you're in debt, is that when we honor God... First, he honors us in return. And that's true with anything, with God. God honors those who honor him. 
So in the area of finances, I said to them, you can try and climb out of debt on your own and and you'll probably get there eventually. Or you can invite God into the the process and, and trust that somehow, and I can't even explain to you how, somehow he's going to get involved and somehow he's going to add his strength to your stretch and cause you to go further faster than you would be able to if you didn't honor him. Somehow God makes 90% with him involved go further than 100% without him involved. I don't get it. It's not how they teach math at school. At least it wasn't when I was at school. But that's it. End of conversation. I said to them, I'm not going to check up on you. I'm not going to go trolling through Elevate's giving records to see what you did after this conversation. The decision to give, what you do with your finances is between you and God. Case closed. So uh, they went over to Queensland, which is where most of their family and friends are uh, for their wedding. And their family and friends have been incredibly generous helping them uh, pay for parts of their wedding and so on and so forth. But, you know, weddings are expensive, right? Especially me. I mean, flip the fee that I charge. Woo! She's private jet, lap pool full of champagne. No hashtag goals when I do a wedding, baby. I'm living the dream. I don't charge for doing weddings for elevate people, just so you know. It was all a joke. Um, so while they're over there, Something happened that uh, despite their limitations, God seemingly got involved. A family friend of theirs uh, found out about their $40,000 debt and uh, offered to loan them $40,000 to pay off all the debt, uh, signed up a little written uh, gentleman's contract that they pay the $40,000 back but interest-free and that they even... Can, can, can pace the repayments based on their circumstances. Good on you, Ricky. That is the appropriate response. Everyone else is like, is that good? Talk to Reese and Jess afterwards. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you God's a vending machine where you put a coin in and stuff comes out. I'm not going to tell you he's a slot machine where you, you, you put money down and you push a button and he gives you the jackpot every time. But here's the thing. He can. He has. He might. He might not. Oh, man, I dropped a hundred bucks in the bucket at Elevate this morning. Got home, checked the post box. Nothing. No one's telling you that's how, how it works, that God's a, a slot machine, an ATM. In fact, I'm sitting here telling you it's not. But I'm saying God honors those who honors him. I am saying, this is the big point today, is God specializes in tight spaces. When you're driven to your knees, stay on your knees and say, God, I'm being stretched here. I need your strength. Your limitation doesn't have to be your lid. It can be a launch pad. And even more importantly, achieving kingdom goals, it can be God's launch pad for getting in the spotlight. Because that conversation isn't about Reese and Jess being so 
clever, or well, I'm so clever, we got out of debt. Theirs was about, we're going to submit ourselves to God when it's inconvenient, when it's uncomfortable, when on paper it doesn't make sense, and we're going to trust Him to help us on this journey to financial freedom. And God showed off in that situation. Goals. Not hashtag goals, goals. I want to shift gears finished this morning. There's lots of publicity about how to set the right goals. Right now, Tony Robbins, the man with the world's largest jaw, is, is doing some seminars in Queensland, and they're cool. It's the second time I've used that gag this morning. It's, it's going to be the last. And, and a lot of talk and a lot of books and the Amazon self-improvement section and so on and so forth are about setting goals. Let me ask a different question, one that doesn't get quite as much publicity, though one that I think is actually equally, if not even more important than setting goals, and it's the question of are you setting the right goals? How are your goals going? Are you hitting your goals? There's a better question to go, how, is to ask how good are your goals? Because we can make excellent progress heading in the wrong direction. Let's say you live in Redcliffe. There's a lot of cool people that live in Redcliffe. Point score, Mark Pomery, one. Let's say you live in Redcliffe. Let's say you live in Redcliffe and you work in the city and you commute in a car. Shame on you. You commute in a car to work. Let's say this particular morning, you've got a meeting in the city at your office at 830 and so you leave the house in Redcliffe, you, you, you make your way to Great Eastern Highway, you start driving down Great Eastern Highway, driving, 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 making excellent progress. 8.35, your phone rings. You only answer it because it's on the hands-free. You say, you see it's your boss. You say, yes, boss. He says, where are you? You say, I'm on, I'm on Great Eastern Highway. Yeah. Well, it's 8.35, and we've got an 8.30 meeting, and you need to be here. You're now late. And, he's like, and you're like, yeah, but I'm, I'm making excellent progress. Really? Where are you? Uh, I'm uh, Bullsbrook. There's absolutely no traffic this morning. There's a slightly more important question than what are your goals, and that's the question is, is how good are your goals? Because we can make excellent progress heading in the wrong direction. And I've seen more life change happen in people when they've shifted the focus of their goals than when they've actually hit some of the goals they set in the first place when their goals were pretty lousy. So let me bend your mind a little bit. Final thought this morning. Let me bend your mind. Let me stretch your mind to... The greatest goal that any of us can ever set and achieve. It comes from something one of the early church heavyweights, a guy named Paul, wrote. And a little bit of Paul's backstory. Paul was one of the religious leaders, one of the Jewish religious leaders in his day. And he was actually, he was pretty good. He was pretty high profile, super smart, super well educated. And, and he had a specialist assignment 
to go around killing Christians because the Christians were a threat to the religious leaders of the day. So Paul was part of the kind of Jewish Navy SEALs operation that was, that was charged with the, the responsibility of knocking off the Christians, killing the threat. That was his job. And, and he became pretty good at it and pretty famous for it. And one day he had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus appeared to him in the flesh. That's going to change your day. And if you respond correctly, it's going to change the course of your life. It might cause you to change your goals. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. And this is what he wrote to one of the groups in the early church. This is a little bit of a chunk, but we'll put it on the screens. You're smart. You'll follow along. Paul wrote this. I don't mind repeating what I've written in earlier letters. If you ever hear me say something when I'm preaching that you've heard me say before, Get over it. I'm taking Paul's example. And let me tell you another thing. No, I'm just kidding. Stop sending me text messages, Neil. I'm preaching. The chairman of our board sends me a text message while I'm preaching. Do you want to know what it is? No, me either. I don't mind repeating what I've written in earlier letters. And I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here goes. Steer clear of barking dogs. Those religious busybodies all bark and no bite. This is a guy that was one, by the way, right? All bark and no bite. All they're interested in is appearances. Knife, happy circumcisers, I call them. Hashtag ouch. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what many think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, this is, he's, he's rattling off his CV here, right? And to a group of people, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders, this was impressive. This is like, poof, this is the CV of CVs. A fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church. A meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special. I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. I'm changing my goals. Why? Because of Jesus. Yeah. All the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus as my master. First hand, everything I once thought I had going for me, insignificant dog dung. And by the way, that, that's not actually the original translation. That's the PG version. He used the worst comparison you could use at the time to say all of my goals, all of the things I worked so hard for, all the things I became great at, I realized I was making excellent progress heading in the wrong direction. So because of Jesus, I've changed my goals. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Jesus and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Jesus, God's 
righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Jesus personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. Goals. I want to be in on Jesus' death so that I can get in on Jesus' resurrection. New goals, better goals. I'm not saying I have all this together, that I've got it made, but I am making progress. I'm well on my way, reaching out for Jesus, who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal Not a goal. The goal. Where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running. And no turning back. You know, Western Christians unwittingly often set goals that, that that are not intended to but actually can see us in a position where we no longer need God. We find ourselves on our knees in circumstantially and our prayers are directed, God, lift me back up off my knees. It ain't comfortable down here. I would like you, God, to make sure that I have enough money. And by us having enough money, we may no longer need God. I've seen people lose jobs and get so desperate for God that they pray and stay on their knees all day, all night, every Sunday here. Get a job. Well, see you when we see you, Mark. Well, you're not saying that to me. You're saying that to God. Thanks for lifting me back up my knee, off my knees. And oh, by the way, I don't actually need you anymore. I got a job. I got money. We don't say, God, answer my prayer so I don't need you. But what I'm saying is we pray prayers about God change our circumstances. Paul's saying, stop praying prayers that, 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 are, that, are, that are aimed primarily at God changing your circumstances and start praying prayers about, hey, God, make me more like you. My, my goals, my prayers aren't about a certain position in life I want to achieve. They're now about a certain person I want to become like. Different goals, huh? Yeah, God's not against us having financial freedom. I don't think he would have answered recent Jesus' prayer if he was. No, here's another credit card. Ninja style, like throwing stars. So I'm not saying that, 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 that praying to God to, to get us out of tight spaces isn't a goal that we should pursue, but I'm saying it's not the number one most important goal that we should pursue. Paul, I'm echoing his words, the number one most important goal that we could pursue is becoming more like Jesus and in the course of our transformation, which won't be complete while we're on this earth until we put the handbrake on, which I recommend you don't. Let God keep transforming. Goals. A little bit of bonus content, and I'll finish. Is um, you know, the money thing? Some people get weird about 
money. Next year, we're talk- teaching a series, four-week series called The Church Just Wants My Money. I can't wait. Huh. And uh, you can come for that if you want. No spoilers. Um, we pray prayers to God about giving us enough money. But there's a couple of problems is we don't first define enough. Remember my first job, I earned $20,000 a year. And I had money in the savings account every week. I'm, I now earn more than $20,000. And I have kind of a similar amount in my savings account. So what happened? Well, I tell you what happened is every time I got a pay rise, I lifted the bar of the definition of what's enough. Well, enough now looks like this. Thanks, God, for giving me enough. Problem is, God, I'm raising the bar. Western Christians, listen to me. Define enough or other people will define it for you. Marketers will define it for you. Peers will define it for you. Kids will define it for you. Define what's enough. But here's the thing. Don't stop trusting God to bless you financially when God is giving you enough. Because to live just trusting God financially with enough is probably one of the most selfish things you could ever do. When there are so many needs and opportunities around the world that if you and I and when you and I have more than enough, we can keep enough for ourselves and use it and then start setting some giving goals, not just earning goals. I know. I'll stop. Sorry, Stewie. All good things have to come to an end. Let me ask a question as I finish this morning. We talk a lot about following Jesus. We had communion, corporate communion. It's, just, it's around this idea of remembering that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came to earth, lived as a human amongst us, died on a cross, horrible death. After three days, though, rose from the dead. He died and rose again, so we would never have to die, that we would experience his resurrection if we put our faith in him, if we chose to follow him. It's not automatic. It makes me sound like a cynical bastard when I say that. It's not automatic. You see, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad they've gone to heaven. If they made a decision to follow Jesus, absolutely assured. I didn't make the rules. That's why every week we give you an opportunity to make that decision for yourself, to make a decision to follow Jesus. And we don't pull that punch. Right now, I'm going to give you that opportunity. The last thing we'll do, then we start talking about coffee. Weird. This is the most important thing we do, though. And that is to ask you, if you have never yet made the decision to follow Jesus, we're going to give you an opportunity in a moment to, to make that decision. And all I want you to do in a moment is, you just slip your hand up, really. It's like... When you're at school, present, here, miss. It's like, God, yep, me. I'm making that decision this morning. I'll see your hand. You're not putting it up to me, but I'll see it. You can put it down. Most important, God sees it. So just as we finish this morning, for those of you that have never made a decision to follow Jesus, right now, just quickly slip your hand up. You want to see your hand, you can put it down, and then we're going to pray. I don't want to miss anybody. I don't want you to miss this opportunity either.